0: Thank you, Matt, for filling in last week at the last minute. I heard great things, so I will try to, uh, to live up to the, uh, to the standard set. I was horizontal all day Sunday. <laughs> so, matter of fact, I basically went to bed uh, Saturday night and got out of bed uh, Monday morning. So it, was, uh, it, it took me down. All right, so we're back to Mark, back looking at Mark. And uh, like last time, I'm going to read, hang on, let me get it up there. There we go. I'm going to read a a healthy uh, portion. We're going to read most of chapter 6. So we're going to start it. We uh, finished Mark 6, 6, last time, picking up at Mark 6, 7. This, chapters 6 and 7, Titling uh, Witness to the Jews, uh, it's uh, Jesus' uh, third Galilean preaching tour. I get a lot, I'm, I'm taking a lot from uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on Mark. Uh, I love D.A. Carson as a, as a commentator. He, he, he makes it flow very logically. It's v- very helpful. Uh, but uh, it's also, so this third uh, tour around Galilee for Jesus also... Uh, represents a shift in the responsibility of the disciples. The interns are becoming teachers, as it were, and uh, so we're going to see them playing a more active role starting here in chapter uh, 6. And again, all of the stories here in 6 and 7 take place in the vicinity of the northwest shore of Galilee. So we have the mission of the 12, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is walking on water, a brief description of his healing ministry, and then another conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, all taking place uh, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and all directed at uh, various uh, Jewish communities. When we get into chapter 8, he's going to retreat from. Galilee into Gentile areas. So we'll talk about his ministry to the Gentiles uh, either next week or the week after that. And so now looking at uh, this ministry to the Jews in chapters six and seven. Uh, So I'm going to read it for us. I realized at the last minute that I shrunk my font from the previous time. So if you guys in the back uh, have trouble, I apologize. I, I will not do it again. It was at the last minute this morning. I went, oh, no, that's the wrong font, and too late to change. So hopefully you'll still be able to read it in the back. If not, it's in your Bible. (laughs) So Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, in their belts but to wear sandals and uh, to not put on two tunics. And he said, wherever you enter a house, stay there till you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The king Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, His brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leaders, leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And the girl gave it to her mother. When, the disciples, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles then returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while.' For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves.' "'Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages "'to buy themselves something to eat.' "'But he answered them, "'You give them something to eat.' "'And they said to him, "'Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread "'and give it to them to eat?' "'And he said to them, "'How many loaves do you have? "'Go and see.' "'And when they had found out, "'they said, "'Five and two fish.' "'Then he commanded them all to sit on the ground "'in groups in the green grass.' So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And whenever, And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So, his ministry around the northwest shore of Galilee. Uh, We get another one of these sandwiches that we talked about last two weeks ago, right here at the beginning. Jesus sends out the twelve, and then uh, we get the story of the beheading of John the the Baptist told uh, as a flashback. And then we get the report of the disciples uh, of their return and, and what had happened, uh, you know, that they had returned from uh, their first mission trip as disciples. The fact that Mark inserts the execution of John in this context, in the context of sending and the returning of the disciples. Remember, whenever John does one of these sandwiches, the, I mean, whenever Mark does one of these sandwiches, the The middle story is explaining the out. It's it's making a point to help us understand the outer story, and so John is inserting the beheading of the John. uh, Mark is inserting the execution of John the Baptist here, not so much for us to understand the story of John the Baptist, but for us to understand the mission of the twelve. So, he sends out the twelve, and which is interesting. You've probably heard that what Jesus did. Uh, with the disciples was fairly uh, typical in that it was very common in in this time period for a holy man to gather disciples to himself and then just to travel around. He He would walk from village to village and he would preach in the villages and as they're traveling from place to place, his disciples would be following behind them and he would tell his stories to them and he would explain his stories to them and he would educate them. So that's very common for this time period. What we have no evidence of, though, is those rabbis didn't send their disciples out. This was, as far as we know, unique uh, in Jesus taking his 12 and dividing them into twos and sending them out to begin uh, their own teaching ministry. And we often think about how the disciples didn't get it didn't understand the message, weren't really with it until after Pentecost. And it, even here, it does seem like they're getting sent out a little, you know, it would seem to us that Jesus is sending them out prematurely. Uh, just in, in chapter 1, verse 36, it says Jesus is exasperated with them. And 438 and, four, and 531, it says they opposed Jesus, and their understanding of Jesus has been and will continue to be marked by misunderstanding all the way into chapter 8. And just a few verses after this, we, as we read the story of the walking on the water, it said that they were astonished because their hearts had been hardened. So here we are, we're sending out these 12 that we're going to describe a chapter later as having their hearts hardened by Jesus' miracles. And then another thing to notice is there are some, there are some uh, significant cities here on the western side shore of galilee uh, but up to this point if you look back we didn't read it today but the, the last half of verse 6 says that jesus went to the villages he didn't go to the major cities he went to the small towns and and given that it says that right on the right on the cusp of him now sending the 12 out we assume he's doing the same thing he's sending them out to these small villages around preach the gospel. It's interesting, they are told to take four things with them on their trip. And they're the four things that the Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites were to grab as they were heading off uh, to uh, leaving, fleeing Egypt and the, in their haste. And so I think, you know, Mark is trying, you know, give some more subtle hints that, you know, that Jesus is the, the new Moses, the, new, the one to come the one that would bring the new covenant. Uh, But it also, I think, is as we see the things they're not supposed to bring. Don't bring a second tunic. uh, Don't bring money. Don't bring a bag. uh, Don't bring bread. He's sending them out, really, I remember, unprepared. I remember this story sticking out to me as a child and thinking, you know, why would he do that? You know, why would Jesus send them out without any money? You know that just like you do as a kid, that didn't make any sense. How how would you go out? I guess I could picture it as a child leaving my parents without anything, and now I'm supposed to just be like out there on my own, and it it didn't make sense to me as a child. And I think we're going to see, especially as we look at the 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 John story, John execution story, and what it means for us as disciples is that when we are when we are called uh by Jesus to serve him uh we w- the call comes uh in a way that char- where we are to be characterized by dependence on Jesus uh they were not to be dependent on uh money and bread and the things of this world but they were to they were uh, no matter what the material shortfalls were and no matter what the unanswered questions were, they were to follow God, and to follow Him immediately and rapidly, just like the Israelites fleeing out of Egypt. Fleeing out of Egypt. And so he then so he says, go into the towns and to teach them, gives them power over the the demons. And then he says, but if they won't listen to you when you go into one of these villages, if they will not, if the village will not listen to you. Then shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is actually in the Pharisaical law, but not as a testimony against Jews. If you were uh, the Pharisees said that if you were uh, if you traveled out of Israel into uh, into Gentile territory, when you came back, you were before you stepped into into Jewish country. You were to shake this, the dust off your sandals so as to not, pure, not to defile the Holy Land. So you were to shake the dust off your sandals as you, as you left the pagans, the, the unbelievers, the Gentiles behind. And so here, John, uh, Jesus is sending his disciples into Jewish villages. And if they won't receive the word from them, they are to shake the sandals off their feet. In essence, to say, you are now Gentiles, you are now to be thought of as those who have rejected God. And so they they go off, they do their ministry, and they are, for all intents, successful. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So then Mark immediately moves into the story of John the Baptist. He began... Uh, the story all the way back in chapter 1 verse 14 he mentions that john the baptist was arrested and now we get for those of you over 60 we get the rest of the story as paul harvey used to say so he tells us this story about john the baptist there's only two passages in the gospel of mark that are not directly about jesus uh, and they're both about john First, John is the forerunner foreshadowed Jesus' ministry. So we get that in, first, uh, in the first chapter, verses 2 through 8. Uh, John is the forerunner of the message and ministry of Jesus. Here, in 6, 14 through 29, you could actually say we're getting Mark's first passion narrative. And John is actually the forerunner of Jesus' death. Uh, there are several parallels... Between, uh, Jesus's, between John's death here and Jesus' death that will come uh, later. Both John and Jesus are executed by political tyrants who fear them but vacillate. You know, we get Pilate and Herod both kind of like what they're hearing and don't like what they're hearing, executed by vacillating political tyrants. But both of these political tyrants succumb to social pressure you know, it's not ultimately, I mean, ultimately it's their decision, but it's not something that they just kind of rationally come to. They both come to social pressure. In John's case, he acquiesces to Herodus, In Pilate's case, he acquiesces to the mob. Both John and Jesus die silently as victims of political intrigue and corruption. As Isaiah said, sheep silent before the shear." We get no last words of John, as it were. He just silently disappears from the, from the scene. And then, of course, both die as righteous and innocent victims. So John's martyrdom prefigures uh, more... Uh, no, sorry. And then, and then finally, you get to the end of the story, right there in verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So like the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead, who buried Saul and Jonathan, or especially Joseph of Arimathea, who would bury Jesus in his own tomb, John's disciples risked the wrath of Herod in order to honor their slain leader. And so we have all these parallels between John's execution and Jesus' execution. So the story does give us a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what's about to come in the death of Jesus. But remember, it's sandwiched in between the sending out of the 12 and the report of the 12 when they come back. So it's telling us more than just what's going to happen to Jesus. It's really telling the disciples what's going to happen to them. This is the cost of missionary life, this is the cost of. Uh, being a follower uh, of Christ. Uh, And most of the disciples do end up being martyred uh, themselves. And so here it's implicit. Later on, Christ's going to make it explicit and and tell and later in Mark, he's going to, Christ is going to say that we have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And we We take that metaphorically most often and and often in our lives. It it is a metaphor for the hard things that God calls us to do. But Mark wants us to understand it can be quite literal taking up your cross to follow Jesus. And it's not just Jesus and the 12, uh, but for all those who uh, Jesus sends, that the world, with all its political tyranny and corruption and sin, is not going to put up with disciples coming with a message that Jesus is the king, is the true king, and will often put the martyrs to death. So then we move from from this into the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, remember, the, the 12 get back, they report, there's all this coming and going so that they don't even have time to eat, so Jesus puts uh, the 12 and himself in a boat. They go over to, the, to a remote area. That By the time they get to the remote area, it's no longer remote in the sense that it's full of people. And it says Jesus had compassion on them. So in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Sparky, don't look. You're looking at your notes, so don't cheat. In the in this feeding of the 5,000, it says Jesus sees them and has compassion on them. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, what does he do when he has compassion on them? He began to teach them. You would think in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, when it says he had compassion on them, he would feed them. But it's the disciples' idea that they need the physical food. His compassion upon them uh, led him to, to teach. He saw that they were teachers, I mean, that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So even though Mark records more about what Jesus did than what he said or what he taught, um, the teaching of Jesus is still central to Mark's gospel. That's what uh, Mark is focused on, oddly to say it that way, even though he spends um, more of his time on uh, what Jesus did than what he said. So... We again right here at the top of you know what my ESV calls Jesus feeds the five thousand. We have the return of the apostles, and interestingly, the first place they're called apostles rather than disciples because they've now been sent. They're no longer students, but they're messengers. And so the messengers have returned. The apostles have returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "Come away." By yourselves to a desolate place that we may rest a while, for there were many who were coming and going, and they had no uh, leisure even to eat. So, Mark follows the account of Herod's banquet with a very different banquet with this uh, feeding of the 5,000. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. So, one would think this must be significant. It's the only miracle that occurs in, in all. Uh, four Gospels, and so they arrive at the desolate place. They they see the crowd. Jesus has compassion on them. He uh, he begins to teach them. The hour goes long. The hour grew late, and his disciples come to him and say, "You know, this is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat." Once we realize the size of the crowd. And the amount of money it would take to buy food for this crowd. Even this suggestion of the disciples is inadequate. They're in a desolate place. The only areas around are countryside and villages. So let's dump 5,000 people into the countryside and villages and have them buy food at a late hour. You know, I grew up in a village. I grew up in Glade Spring and we didn't have we uh, we didn't have a mcdonald's or a pizza hut or a, there, there was no showing up in glade spring at 9:30 at night and buying dinner the grocery store was probably closed by by the time it grew late and so even the disciples story or thought here is insufficient and so jesus turns to them and says you give them something to eat Often, you know, you're you're shaking your head at the disciples going, come on, guys, you you know, you you can do better than this. But you get it here. This one's where you go, yeah. They're like, yeah, us give them something to eat. Three truckloads that we brought with us, you know, in the boat. So he said, you want us to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them uh, to eat? I doubt they had 200 denarii. It doesn't actually say they don't have 200 denarii. Uh, Matthew says that uh, a denarii is uh, the average day laborer's wage. And so 200 denarii is almost a year's worth of of savings or or a year's worth of salary. And so I'm pretty sure they weren't carrying around a year's worth of a day laborer's salary with them as they were traveling. And so they're saying, you know, you want us to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give it to them. And so Jesus then starts this, starts this process. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And so they have five and two fish, basically en- enough for the disciples themselves for dinner that evening. Uh, and that's it. Uh, so then Jesus has them sit down in the groups by hundreds and fifties. I think, again, a reference uh, backwards to Moses. I mean, what's the point of dividing this group into hundreds and fifties? Uh, if not to reference uh, uh, when Moses divided the Israelites into 50s and 100s to be ruled over by the elders. So now Jesus has uh, the disciples to break the crowd up into 100s and 50s and then gives the disciples the bread to distribute. Again, uh, this is more of incorporating the disciples, now called apostles, into Jesus' ministry. They're going to be the ones distributing the bread to the people. So Jesus then divided the two fish. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. So he then takes the loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and saying a blessing, he broke the loaves and gave them disciples to set before the people. And he, div- and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Do you think the 12 baskets is significant? Why 12? You know, why not 20 baskets of leftover or 5 baskets of leftover? 12 disciples, 12 baskets of leftover. Here They were worried about the fact that they had 5 loaves and 2 fish. And at the end, each has a basketful of food. Jesus sees to it that there is a basket full of food for each of the disciples at the uh, end of this meal. Uh, The early church liked to make a lot of uh, this story in terms of the parallels uh, with the Lord's Supper. Jesus taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it to his disciples, just like he will do later on when he initiates uh, the Lord's Supper. And so I think Mark is again foreshadowing that. I don't know how much weight we can get out of it, but at least there is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, at the end of it, it says that the people decided to come and to uh, to take Jesus and make him king by force. So John adds that additional piece of information. And I think in looking at Mark you get the idea that this was not a spontaneous thought, like, oh, we all got bread, let's make him king. Backing up in the story of Mark. So the 12 get back and report into Jesus, and then it says they don't have time to eat because there's a lot of coming and going. You know, it's not, there's a crowd. You know, typically with, with Jesus, it's, there's a crowd, Right? And he's got to separate himself from the crowd. But in this passage, there's a lot of coming and going. People are coming and going. I think people are coming and they're kind of investigating this Jesus that they've heard about. Then they're going back through their villages and they're talking about the Messiah has come and it's time for us to overthrow the Romans and to establish the new kingdom. And so, Jesus is seeing this political intrigue beginning to build up. And so that's one of the reasons that he then gets on the boat to go to this desolate area with just the disciples because he wants to nip this political intrigue in the bud. And then we get to uh, the story itself. And at the end of the story right here, it says, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, it is common to only count the men and then just to assume the presence of women and children. But it's interesting, in the feeding of the 4,000, which will come a couple of chapters later, it says 4,000 people. It doesn't actually use the word men. Here it actually inserts the word men. So there's this political intrigue that we know about specifically because of what John said. There's been all this coming and going. We're in a desolate place, and people have come from the villages... I suspect it was mostly men at the feeding of the 5,000 and that these this was this was this was the militia this was the group that were prepared to take Jesus by storm and to you know head off into Jerusalem and run the Romans out you know this was the moment and then I also think that explains why Jesus then You know, after having the disciples break the groups into, you know, into tens and fifties and have them distribute the food, now that it's time to dismiss the group, he sends his disciples off by themselves, and he dismisses the crowd. Rather than, you know, if you're trying to dismiss a crowd of 5,000, it can be helpful to have more than one person saying, okay, time to leave. And I think the disciples themselves were not immune to this idea of wanting to take Jesus and make him a political messiah. Uh, and so I think he, he kind of skirts the disciples off. He dismisses the crowd. And then he goes up on the mountain to pray. In Mark, Mark only references Jesus going off to pray three times. And at all three points in his ministry, he goes off at night into a lonely place. And is removed from his disciples. At each of these junctures, there's, there's a temptation for Jesus to step aside from the ministry that he knows the path that he's supposed to be on. These prayer times seem to be uh, a recommitment, a, a refocusing with the Father as to what his true calling is. And so after he dismisses the 5,000, he goes up on the hill he prays, uh, he communes with God, his Father, and then, as night comes on, then he looks out onto the ocean and sees the disciples uh, struggling uh, against the wind, struggling with the oars against the wind. And he goes out and uh, walks on the water. And It says, he intended just to walk right past them and to go on to the place where He told them to be, but they see him, and they think that he is a ghost. And so they cry out. And then he responds, Take heart, it is I. This is Yahweh. This is the I am. Take heart, it is I am. I am, you know, when Moses asks, uh, Who shall I tell the Israelites has sent me to them? Tell them the I am has sent you. And here is Jesus taking that I am to himself. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In the Old Testament, there are several references to God and water in the Old Testament where God walks upon the deep or, or walks in the deep. So, God is sovereign over water. I think I've mentioned several times uh, over the years that the Israelites were not a water people. Uh, they were deathly afraid of, of water in general. Uh, they were not a seafaring people. So, to say that god is the god of the water is to say that god is control is even in control over chaos think about jonah you know jonah's talking to the sailors saying it was it's my god who who made the sea and that freaks them out there's passages in job about god walking amongst the deep and so for for jesus To walk upon the water and then use this phraseology of I am is to announce himself to the disciples as the God who walks upon the water. And then I've already mentioned their their reaction here is not one of faith. Having seen the feeding of the 5,000, having seen the I am walking upon the water, uh, their reaction that their hearts are hardened. We talked about this two weeks ago, about how miracles do not guarantee faith. We often think, if only God would just show up in a miraculous way, then I would believe, or then everyone around me would believe, and that's just not the testimony of, of Scripture. So often, the prophets of old know this firsthand, that God gives them a message and they come with the message, and the message is accompanied by miracles. And what do the people do? They, re, or they reject the prophets and chase them and try to kill them and uh, beat them. And so God showing up in a miraculous way is in, in no way a guarantee of, of faith. And then the, I think the other thing to notice here, I think in the context of uh, what we saw with with. Uh, the disciples going out and the, and the execution of John the Baptist in the middle, and it talking to that being a way of Mark saying to us, you know, that discipleship is costly. Uh, I think the other thing to notice then here, I think Mark is wanting us to see, is when does Jesus show up? And Jesus shows up in the storm, you know, when they're, when they're hard pressed and they're rowing against the wind this is when, when Jesus shows up. So he's told his disciples to go and to trust him and to preach without worrying about food and money. And he's come to them when the storm is at its peak and they are hard-pressed by the elements around them. And I think Mark's wanting us to see the same thing in our own lives, that we go when we're called. We go even when we can't see how it could possibly work. And we expect Jesus to show up in our weakness and supply our need when things are hard. And then they, if they, the winds and the waves calm down. They make it over to uh, Gennesaret, which is still on the same side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're really just going you know, down the shoreline. They came to the land and they moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to uh, wherever they were, wherever they heard he was, and, and wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched him, they were made well. And so, I take this really as Mark's version of John's, if all the stories that you know Jesus had done were written down, the books would be, you know, it would be too many books to contain them. This is kind of Mark's version. He wants to say, Jesus did a whole lot more stuff than what I've written in my gospel. And so this is just kind of a summary statement of his ministry amongst the Jews in the various places that they went. The next section, which we're not going to do today, is going to be the Pharisees coming out from Jerusalem up to Galilee, up to this area, for the another confrontation. So there's several of these confrontations between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, and we're going to have the next one in the next chapter. And then, as soon as that confrontation is over, is when Jesus is going to start his Gentile itinerant mission immediately after that. And I think... It is in large measure because of what we have just seen and what we'll see next week with the Jews, with a large bulk of the Jews now wanting to make him the political king and with the opposition of the Pharisees, he's going to move into Gentile territory as it were to let things calm down and to cool off before beginning his final stretch of of ministry. So, that's what I have. Any questions or observations? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. A, I think it's just the whole thing, <laughs> you know. That uh, again, I think the uh, the story of the walking on the water is really making this case that Jesus is the Messiah. And even more than what we expected in the Messiah in that he is God himself. And they should have gotten that in the distribution that, you know, Moses gave them the manna. But now Jesus can actually multiply bread and, and they're not getting it. They're not getting the, who he is. A quick trivia, since you mentioned the snakes in the story of Moses... There actually is in Egypt. I mean, s- still today, a twig snake uh, that um, that will camouflage itself as a, a as a twig and look like a stick. So uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if you grab it, is you know, it, it's like a possum. It it plays stick, and you can look it up. It's on Google. Uh, uh, and and so it could be. It, <clears throat> I'm not sure the Egyptians did magic. I think they brought in a twig snake and said, "Look, Moses, Moses isn't really doing. It. You know, we can do this too." And they throw their twig snake down on the ground, and then Moses, who has like a real snake, <clears throat> eats eats the little you know twig snake. So I always I just I when I when I first learned about the the African twig snake, I just thought that was hilarious. You know. That, uh, that until you pick it up. No snake's poisonous until you touch it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. So I think its secret is camouflage, not poison. But um, so, yeah, so Moses' staff that really turned into a snake ate the little twig snake. So, all right, we're at that time. So thank you, and we'll see you next Sunday.